Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this episode of Missing the Point, we present part one of a two-part series recapping the curse-breaking 2004 Boston Red Sox. In this two-part series, we'll discuss how the Red Sox endured 86 years of misery, from the 1967 Impossible Dream to Bill Buckner's era in Morgan's Magic, to having their hearts broken once again by the Yankees in 1999 and 2003. This is the New England Championship Rewrap, 86 Years of Misery. But it's all relative. To start us out, just to get you back in the mindset, I want to read a little excerpt from Boston Globe great Bob Ryan from the day after this team won the World Series. Why me? Why us? Why can't we win one? Just one. 11 days ago, baseball life as we know it changed. Why? Who knows? It just did. Emerging from a 3-0 abyss in the American League Championship Series, the Red Sox rolled off eight straight wins. 3-0, make that three Mariana outs away from a humiliating sweep by the evil empire. The Boston Red Sox have put together the most devastating run in the history of postseason baseball, winning the last four games against the Yankees, then dispatching the St. Louis Cardinals in an official World Series sweep the capper being last night's 3-0 triumph before 52,037 heartbroken fans at Bush Stadium. Eight straight. It's over. Red Sox win. Red Sox win. The Red Sox win. God, I hope you're satisfied. For 86 years, and especially during the 37 seasons since the 1967 team restored baseball interest in New England, the question has been, What will Boston do if the Red Sox win the World Series? We're about to find out. Now, those are the words of Bob Ryan, right for the Boston Globe. Everyone knows him. The day after they won the World Series. I picked this because I really feel like it encapsulates what this 2004 Red Sox team meant. And to really dive deep into that, we kind of have to go back a little bit into what the Red Sox were before this moment. Because if you read this, you're thinking, what do you mean? Like, what's going on? Why can't you believe it? Why would God be satisfied? And this is because the Boston Red Sox were the epitome of heartbreak. They were the reason people went to bed crying at night most seasons, me included, my dad included. People lived and died watching this team. 
not win a World Series championship. And were fans their entire life, diehard fans, and never saw them win one. They didn't win one for 86 years and along the way had some of the biggest heartbreak in the history of sports. History of sports. Uh, I have to welcome in the crew here. I've been talking long enough. So I'm going to bring you guys in with a specific moment here. I got to know, guys, to set this up. What was the first moment ever the Red Sox just absolutely tore your heart out, stomped it on the ground and said, you know what? I really don't give a shit about you. Really don't. Mike, let's go to you first. How we doing, man? Yeah, good. Uh, glad to be here. This is going to be a this is going to be a hell of an episode. I think you know if you try and 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 remember uh, heartache, you know, given to you or produced to you by the the Red Sox, there's a lot of options. For me, I was 11, and it was a 1999. I think it was the American League Championship Series against the Yankees. And we had a great game three. It was Pedro versus Roger. But I couldn't even, like, I remember reading the Boston Herald the day after game one. And there was a little quote by Yogi Berra. So Yogi Berra had pulled Bernie Williams aside with a smile on his face before the series started and said, relax, we've been beating them for 80 years. As a kid, I was like, well, that's bullshit. And then they went on to absolutely... Kill us that series. Four games to one. Pedro got the only win of that series. It's tough to admit it. But as an 11-year-old, I lost faith in the Red Sox in that series before game two. If if one of the Yankees greats is, is already just laughing it up, saying, don't worry about it, we've, we've been kicking their ass for 80 years, what are you going to do? And then after that year, I, I remember thinking, man, like we're never going to beat them. They're, they're just a wagon, and we're never going to be that. So for me, like I said, it, it was 99. That was a good season for the Red Sox, too. It's funny because it was one of the most memorable seasons in Red Sox history. And how did it end up? Getting their asses kicked by the New York Yankees. They had the All-Star game there. They had that Ted Williams thing. It it was a big year for the Sox. We had Pedro. I mean, Pedro struck out McGuire, Sosa, and Bonds throwing heat in the All-Star game. And you're like, wow, we have that guy. Clemens had just left. We have that guy. They finished four games back of the Yankees that year, and they just were they were just no match for them. And everyone knew it, including some seventy-five-year-old former catcher for the Yankees, and he was right. So, yeah, that's it for me. Joe, what's up, man? How we doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. Good. Two thousand four socks, man. I cannot be good. I know you are over the moon about this. I don't know if you're more excited about this or recent NFL signings in 2021, but you know, look at looking back, I'm with Mike on this. And and the reason 1999 was so damning to me was because looking back on it now, thinking of the emotions I felt then as a, an 11 year old watching baseball and watching it crumble. And like you just said, seeing all those moments at Fenway during the all-star game, you know, before the seats were on the monster, I just think of the old Fenway and just how much lore there is there. And then also how much pain there is as a Sox fan. Cause I mean, granted, like you said, people went their entire lives without seeing the Boston Red Sox win a world series. It took 86 years between 1918 and, and 2004 before they were able to win another one. And 99 was it for me. I'm going to stick with my narrative here because looking back on it, Jimmy Williams was not a good manager and, and Dan Duquette was the, 
I don't even want to call him the Dave Dombrowski of his time because that would be an insult to Dave Dombrowski. Dan Duquette is just, he's just a slimy guy. So there goes our chance of ever getting him on this show. But, he knows uh, it. He knows yeah, it. He, he, not, he wouldn't deny it. I mean, he, if he heard you say it, he'd probably be like, well, well, I mean, and, I'm, and not, proof- I'm not sticky. I'm not sticky. Sure. Well, you know. and, and the proof is in the pudding, because then after he left, after he left Boston, he went down to Baltimore and basically tore apart that franchise, too. So that's kind of why 99 is it for me. And I know we're going to do this as we go through through Ray's moment and then get towards the point of of the entire episode here. But, you know, so much happened after that 99 season that that really I mean, they they didn't get better in 2000, 2001. And then in 2002, that's when things started to, to switch around. But 99, Duquette was making good moves then. I mean, without Dan Duquette, Pedro Martinez is never a Boston Red Sox. So I guess we have to give him neither that. Is right? neither and is he, Manny. Neither is Manny. And neither is Manny. So, you know, we do have to give him that kind of that credit. But as we're going to talk about shortly, there's a lot more credit to be given elsewhere. But I'm with Mike. 99 was kind of that season where it was like, you know, I'm only 11. But is this ever going to happen? I have something to add to that, too. But, Ray, I got to go to you, man. We got to get your thoughts in here. It's 2004 Red Sox, man. You've been talking about this. We've been talking about this for a while. What do you got for me? This is the team, man. This is it. How did they rip that heart out once or twice? Let me know. The issue is we could have went three for three here, but I'm not going to. I'll, I'll take another time in history. Uh, so we're just not sounding redundant. I have to go with October 16th, 2003. And if Red Sox fans don't remember that day, you should because it's the Aaron Bleepin' Boone day. Your fans before us have the Bucky Bleepin' Dent. We have the Aaron Bleepin' Boone. And I never forget October 16th, 2003 because I was sitting on my couch and I remember vividly Tim Wakefield being on the mound and, you know, my grandmother was sitting in the, in the living room. I really remember Tim Wakefield on the mound and, you know, he just throws, throws his knuckleball and it, it dances. And it, 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 like, and it's like, you know, Aaron Boone has sent the Yankees to the World Series. And I, I was just like, oh, my God. Because remember, you know, that series was going back and forth. And it's like, you know, games one and two was awesome in New York. You know, to come home three, four, and five, you know, to handle business. And I'm just like, okay, they're going to actually do it. And then, you know, you leave Pedro in there for too long. After he pointed to the sky, which that was his signal to say that he was done most nights. You know, Grady Little's dumbass leaves him in the game. You know, and the next thing you know, Hideki Masui, who we missed out on signing, hits the double, Posada gets ahead, and next thing you know, I'm in seventh or eighth grade, I think, uh, Sandra just like in tears, literally like just pissed off that they had had lost. So I was just like, I'm like, if they didn't get it done in two out of three, I'm like, it's not going to happen. And my grandmother was saying, she was like, look, 46, 67, 75, 86. Now we got, oh, 99. And now we got 2003, Rayshawn. She was like, it'll, it'll never happen. She was like, at that time, she was 79 years old. She was like, it'll never happen. So we started to be so somber. I said it's somber, but like, yeah, that's no, it. Listen, it, was, it was ridiculous. Listen, that's the mood. That's the mood at the beginning. We got to go to the basement first and we, we got to reach the dark depths of this to realize how amazing this win actually was when it comes down to it. Because you're right. All three of you are 100% right. You guys know me. I'm, I'm a very excitable person. I don't know if everyone out there knew this. I'm a very excitable person. So when it comes to sports, like I really wear my emotion on my sleeve, especially when I'm watching the games. Age 11, Yankees in that ALCS. Red Sox were going to, they had like a runner on second and third. And I was like, all right, here we go. Here we go. My dad's sitting there calm the whole fucking time. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Like, come on. He's like, just wait. Yeah, don't worry about it. Just hang on a sec. Double play. Next at bat. And he said the look on my face went from just like ecstatic 
to heartbroken so fast that he was like, what did I just do to my son? And that was like literally the belief of what Red Sox Nation was at that point. If you saw the Red Sox win the World Series and you were living in 2004, you were living during the Taft administration. Okay. So the Howard, Howard Taft administration. That was the last time the Red Sox had won the World Series. Go over some of the heartbreak here. So we all know Curse of the Bambino. Everyone's heard Curse Bambino. So we got 1946. Johnny Pesky's relayed a home plate. Hesitated. No one ever saw Johnny Pesky hesitate once. He's safe. They lose. 1975. Loses the Cincinnati Reds in Game 7. Red Sox were up 3-0. Reds tied the game. And then they ended up winning the World Series and what people would call one of the greatest World Series ever. I mean, if you watch, and I say forget it as if we were there because none of us were there, but they beat that Oakland Athletics team that was running through everyone in the 70s. Catfish Hunter, Reggie Jackson. I mean, it. oh my God, once again, you know, I, I know, Joe, no rabbit hole, but we have to go to a rabbit hole for this tonight. We have to. Um, no, it's fine, dude. I mean, it's, it's all about I mean, rabbit holes tonight, bro. And then, I mean, then that Cincinnati's red team, my God, Johnny Bench, Joe Morgan, Tony Perez. I mean, it's unbelievable. And I'm like, they actually, they go back and forth, go back and forth. Louis Tiant is doing his thing. You know, he's going, you know, throwing 130 pitches, 40 pitches, 140 pitches just to keep us in, in the game. But that red team eventually was just too much, unfortunately. 86 to me is a little crazier than the 75. We can't go to 86 yet because... Before we go to 86, the other one that lives in infamy, the Red Sox history, 1978. Red Sox, I can't believe I'm about to read this. I'm so happy I wasn't alive during this time. So happy. The Red Sox had a 14-game lead over the Yankees on July 18th. Holy shit. July 18th, Yankees subsequently caught fire, eventually tying Boston atop the standings on September 10th after sweeping a four-game series at Fenway Park, an event Red Sox fan known as Boston Massacre. Six days later, the Yankees held a three-and-a-half game lead. The Red Sox caught fire, won 12-14, in the most Red Sox fashion ever, just to force the tying playoff. And then what happened next is something Red Sox fans know as one phrase, Bucky fucking Dent. Won the Yankees the one-game playoff. So in true Red Sox fashion, I don't know what sums it up more is blowing a 14-game lead, doing just enough to come back, and then blowing it again. If you think about the Red Sox pre-2004, they invented ways to really screw with your mental health. Like they did. They would get you into it, they, they and it, you would be counting them out and be like, you know what? I've seen this before. Not doing it. It was a very abusive relationship. And then all of a sudden, they'd be like, oh, wait, they have a shot. They have a shot. Bucky Dent. Tying runs to the plate every night. It could be down 10. Yeah. And it was like that up until 2004. But like you just said, it was like 1999. That was kind of the culmination of it all. And I feel like that was the culmination for our parents' generation in a lot of ways, too, because they had waited so long. And, you know, Bobby, like you said, with your dad in 2003, I mean, it happened in 99. It was the same thing. It was like, you know, just wait, just give it time. They know exactly how to blow this. And it's so funny because now 20, what, 25 years later, uh, 22 years later, 
it's oh you guys are all spoiled and it's like well listen you've lived during this time too so you know welcome welcome to the club because you know prior to 2001 when the patriots won super bowl 36 and then 04 when the red sox won this town was a very sad town in terms of baseball and football and both of those teams both of these teams knew how to blow leads knew how to give away games and make decisions that just ruined it for all of us in so many ways but like mike said it was so abusive that you couldn't not come back you could never not come back i, I feel like for me personally the and, and i'm speaking in current terms the last couple of years have been tough for me to watch baseball because baseball is changing so much as of late, but you know, everybody talks about their heyday of baseball in their life. The heyday of baseball for our generation was when we were, you know, adolescents and, and just coming into our teenage years, that was the best time for baseball. And, and a lot of people will say, well, that was the steroid era, everything else. Well, what is, from the strike to like 2007? From the strike to 2007. Mike just said it perfectly. And I'm just ex- expanding on it because it is such a roller coaster of emotion that they invented ways to just absolutely screw the pooch whenever we thought it was going right. And unfortunately, A lot of that can be pointed, as I said before, to the owner, the manager, and who was being hired to put in place. Now, I am not a big John Henry fan. I'm not a fan of the Fenway group, but they did it right at that point. So after 78, heartbreak, Red Sox suck for the next eight years. One of the worst teams in baseball year in and year out. 1986 rolls around, and they have a hell of a baseball team. They're pretty damn good. We have a young, looking youthful Roger Clemens. On the mound, Boston Red Sox. There was that black stitch, Red Boston jerseys, too. I love those jerseys. Those are some of my favorite Red Sox jerseys. But, man, 1986, if there's any season that encompasses what it meant to be a Red Sox fan, it was these two seasons that everyone always talked about. 1986, 2003. 1986, the Red Sox, one out. One out away. I, I have friends that said they, they had called their parents. My dad said he had called his dad, had him on speed dial, on speed dial, ready to go each time. And it never happened. It never happened. Bill Buckner, man. It just speaks to the ways, again, that they just really tried to screw with you, right? Because 78, 86, 2003, we all forget that in 1988 and 1990, they made it to the ALCS both years and were swept by Oakland. 88, too? 88 and 90, they kicked us in the teeth so often that we've forgotten some of their lesser-known screw-ups or heartbreaks. That's how good at being bad they were for so long. So something everyone forgets about 1999 is that series wasn't as much of a blowout that people think it was. So yes, we lost 4-1, to but I don't know if you guys remember the play, the phantom tag, where Chuck Knobloch, quote-unquote, tagged Jose Offerman to turn two, Red Sox were down one run in the bottom of the eighth inning. Murray on first, one out. They turned that double play. The Yankees scored six runs in the top of the ninth inning. That was it. All she wrote, series over, season over. Chuck Knobloch was an asshole. <laughs> but it's so funny because he was a hell of a second baseman. Uh, and we always say around baseball and scouting, 
and everything else is that if you go and ask a player what position they play and they tell you second base, you don't want them on your team. And I feel like that was Chuck Knobloch because he couldn't throw any of that stupid stance that we all pretended to be Chuck Knobloch as kids. It stopped after 1999. I can tell you that much. It's, but it's interesting you bring up 86. Bill Buckner, God rest his soul, was 36 years old at the time of this game. In extra innings, he was batting 143 against the New York Mets in this World Series. He was 0 for 5 in this game, and he had bum knees. Now, granted, if your first baseman can't get down for a ball, then he shouldn't be in the game at all. But this was another managerial snafu by John McNamara, who was the Red Sox manager at the time, for not bringing in a defensive replacement. for It doesn't even matter who it is. Bring the last guy off the bench. Put in a pitcher that has knees. This is the old case of, and it's kind of a baseball thing, sticking with your guy and, you know, it's the old eye test. It was the old do right by your guy thing. They were five to three in the ninth and they were like, leave him in there. Let Buckner win the World Series. It was in the the 10th. It was in the extra innings. Here's my problem where I like to bring everybody back down to earth. While the Mets won that and probably gained a lot of momentum, that was only game six and it was three to two. So it's not like it's not like it was a 3-0 series and the Mets came back because we all know that the Red Sox were the first ones to come back from a 3-0 deficit in a playoff series. The Red Sox had no business losing that series, but Game 7 could have gone their way. Also, Game 5 of the 86 World Series was the last postseason win that they had until 1998. <laughs> so they lost their next 13 postseason games. They would have taken us on the ride, 88, 90, 95, all swept. Swept every single time that they made the playoffs. And you're right, too, Joe. So it was always blamed on the curse. That was always like it was this aura of, like, the curse, the curse, the curse. The 86 was not the curse. That was just bad decisions. You're right. It's it's the curse. It's part of the curse. But that game six, man, you look at what they did. So Calvin Schiraldi was in there, got the first two. Then... They get, I think it was three straight hits off him. They take him out. We weren't around them. My dad described who Bob Stanley was to me. He he described him as a bad Frank Castillo. That's what he told me. He was a bad Frank Castillo. Like, this dude was not a good pitcher. So as soon as they brought him in, they knew. Like, my dad was like, this game's over. Yeah, I mean, that's on McNamara a lot for making bad managerial decisions in a big series. We see it all the time. Right. We've seen so many coaches and managers make bad decisions over the years, and they've been going on forever. As long as sports have existed, managers have made bad decisions. And it's so interesting because we talk about curses, and I I feel like curses are so specific to baseball, American baseball. I, I feel like it's such a Western thing. And I say that with all the love in the world, whether it's for the Cubs, whether it's a goat or Steve Barton or for the Red Sox, it's Babe Ruth and the owner of the Red Sox in 1917 wanting to fund a Broadway show for his wife. And that's when they were using the players as pawns and chips in other businesses. But it's just so interesting when you look at it and, and we look back that far and think that a business transaction was the reason why a baseball team went without winning a World Series for 86 years like that. That seems really dumb when it comes when it's said out loud, but it was all part of the curse. It was all part of the curse. If if we're gonna if we're gonna give the Aaron Boone home run as part of the curse, 
then the same play is part of the curse. The 99 season is part of the curse. It's all part of this magical curse that's out there. And it's, it was painful. I think why the curse had so much credence, Bobby, is because, again, it, and I think o- only the Red Sox could have done this is because of the way that they manufacture their losses and their heartbreak, right? Like, if they just get, if they just don't win at all, there's no curse. But the way in which they, they took us on that ride to lose is what led us to feed the curse. And before we move to, you know, to 03, because we're all here, didn't between 99 and 2003 feel like so much longer than it was? Like the drop off yeah. that occurred in 2000, 2001, and that awful end of Jimmy Williams, and then and then we had Joe Kerrigan. It just feels like from the ages of eleven to fifteen, we aged probably ten years of baseball in those four years, right? Because they took us from the highest of what we thought the highest or highs were at that time, and then they just sunk. Injuries to Nomar to Pedro, Mo Vaughn's gone. It, it looked like everything was over. I want to reiterate a little bit more on the curse here. So this curse went bigger than baseball. That That's how big it started to get, where it started to weave its way into pop culture. That's how much the curse of a Bambino was a real thing. So first we have the ways Red Sox fans tried to break the curse, including taking a piano that Babe Ruth had sunk to the bottom of a lake because, you know, that happened in 1918. And they're like, yeah, piano's still down there. Let's get it. Break the curse. Ridiculous. Then we have someone put a uh, Boston hat at the top of Mount Everest. They burned a Yankees hat. They burned the, the, the Yankees one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That's so awesome. It is. Listen, only Red Sox fans, man. Fever Pitch, a movie literally about, I mean, first it was based off, I think it was Arsenal soccer team story at first, something like that. But it was based for the Red Sox, based off the Red Sox curse, everything like that. My favorite one is on the television show Lost. I don't know if you guys ever watched Lost. There's an episode where, so they're on an island, they're a deserted island. They're like, oh, we know what's going on outside the island. You don't, blah, blah, And the guy's like, no, you don't. And he's like, oh, yeah? The Red Sox won the World Series. The guy literally looks at him and goes, I know you're lying. There's no way the Red Sox won the World Series. Flips the TV on. Red Sox fans of long day. Perfect. So that's how much it had weaved its way into culture. One last thing. It weaved its way into a world that Ray and I and Craig are very familiar with professional wrestling. I mean, WrestleMania 14 in Boston. Pete Rose from the Big Red Machine walked up there and said, I I, I dropped off some tickets for Bill Buckner, but he couldn't bend over to pick him up. How about it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was great. But I, I was also pissed that he said that. I was pissed, you know, because my grandmother had told me about that. But I, I like I said, my, my grandmother, like I said, who, who was born in 1924, you know, obviously she was there through, through the Ted Williams era. So, you know, 46, you know, they didn't get it done. 49, they didn't get it done. You know, she told me stories about Carl Yashemsky and how, you know, there was nobody in attendance in the early 60s. So, but then obviously, you know, they get Jim Lomborg and then, you know, Rico Petroselli. But yeah, she, she was just telling me about that in 65, obviously in 86. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad Mike brought up 88 and 90 because, like, like I said, that definitely gets forgotten. And that's, it's crazy. But it's like, you know, on Nesson, it was like, oh, like it's Morgan's magic. What magic? What magic? What, did they cast the spells that we weren't going to continue to win? <laughs> My thing is, we were never better than those Oakland teams. What the Bash brothers, you know, with Canseco and McGuire and Dave Stewart and our guy, Dennis Ricky. Eckersley. Ricky. You know, Ricky, Ricky. Ricky Henderson. You know what I'm saying? It, it was a joke how good that team was. But, no, I, I mean, but, you know, Joe said it best, too. Like, 
we really do forget there was a game seven and had a chance to win <laughs> game seven. Not like they, not like they lost 10 to three, like New York did in 04. They, they didn't get blown out the building. They had a chance to actually win the game, but of course not. Whether they were Roger, winning, Clemens, they were winning, they were winning. Yeah, they were, they were winning. winning. Yeah, they were winning. They were winning three and to they, nothing, and they could not get it done. And much like you have Dave Henderson, you have Jim Rice, you have Dwight Evans, you really have some of the better talent in the American League at that time. And it's just unfortunate that the best memory of that '86 season really was the Dave Henderson home run in California. So one last pop culture reference I need to throw in there. I found it today and I thought it was so awesome. So in the Fallout universe, one of the events in the timeline divergence is that the curse was never broken and that the Boston Red Sox never won the World Series. Even up to 2077, newspaper articles in Fallout 4 show that the Red Sox were up 3 to nothing against Texas in 2077. Game four was scheduled for the day the nuclear bombs would end up falling. <laughs> I read that and I was like, that literally stopped so perfectly. You know what I mean? Like only the Red Sox would lose by nuke. You know? <laughs> well, clearly in the Fallout universe, Theo Epstein was never born. So right, that's listen. That couldn't be a more perfect segue. So before we get into 2004, we have to dissect 2003 because that's really what the first heartbreak that we all really lived through you know that really affected us down deep into our soul so going into this 2003 season 2002 we didn't make the playoffs we were actually a pretty solid baseball team i think we won like 92 games that year low and pedro both won over 20 games i think it's one of the first time in red sox history we had two 20 game winners they both had under a three era manny was awesome it was a good team so then going into 2003 the red sox were big players in the free agent market. They were trying to go after this Dominican Republic defector, Jose Contreras. They lost to who? The fucking Yankees. I want to go back a little bit. Everyone's seen Moneyball. The Red Sox tried to change the way they were thinking because they're like, listen, we're not going to fucking beat this team anymore. All they do is spend money. We need to figure something out. Theo's on that same tree line. They lose out on Billy Bean. Billy Bean decides to stay in Oakland. So they bring in someone that they know has followed this whole Moneyball extravaganza, and they bring in 20-year-old Theo Epstein. First of all, Moneyball, awesome movie. Brad Pitt, phenomenal. Obviously, there was some changes in that. Thank goodness Billy Bean never came to the Boston Red Sox. And here's why. I respect the hell out of Billy Bean. What he did with Scott Hatterberg in 2002, what he did in that season was... Incredible. And this is where Hyam Bloom comes in the present day, because I think this is what he's still trying to do. 2002 comes and goes. And if you haven't seen the movie Moneyball or read the book, both are phenomenal. It's one of the few books I've actually read through in my entire life because it's just so good. And the, the thought of Moneyball and what he wanted to do, what the vision Billy Bean had is such a good vision for the Oakland A's for the Tampa Bay Rays, for small market teams that can't spend a lot of money but are looking to play that kind of baseball that can beat the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Phillies, the the Cardinals, these franchises that don't historically have not played moneyball. He was reportedly offered twelve and a half million. And in 2002, that would have made him the highest paid general manager in all of baseball. And I pretty sure that would have lasted for a very long time, but thank goodness they didn't bring sports too, right? 
Yeah, something like that. And thank thank goodness they didn't bring him in when they did. And thank goodness he stayed in Oakland. I really like Billy Bean. I think it's he's done a great job out there. But if he came here as the Red Sox general manager, and this is revisionist history, hindsight's 2020, the Red Sox don't have four World Series championships in the last 19 years. That's true, you know, to, to an extent. But I mean, once again, that trio... Listen, man, if we could have found a way to get a whole, you know, Hudson, Mulder, Zito, Miguel Tejada, Eric Chavez, you know, I, I mean, that team was loaded, man. Jermaine Dye, like I, that, man, I, yeah, <laughs> that, that, that team was loaded, man. Like, so money ball or not, I, I mean, I was shocked that they didn't get at least to a World Series, but. I mean, that Jeter play, which is like really one of the best, really a top five play of all time I've seen in the postseason really ever. That flip to Posada to get Terrace Long out a couple of years before that one was just unreal. And to me, that kind of closed the lid on that whole team. Like they wasn't going to get back after that. It was unbelievable. It was the one versus us that killed him. It was the one versus us that, en- that ended that entire money ball. Hudson, Zito. That whole era was over once they blew it against us. Theo, so he loses out in Contreras. Red Sox Nation is pissed. And all of a sudden, Theo brings in three guys that would go down in epic Red Sox history. Like, when I saw that he signed all three of the guys this offseason and what he got him for, I was like, you, you gotta be fucking kidding me. So, Kevin Millar had already agreed to play in Japan. He was gone. And and they made some crazy contract with them. They made some crazy deal that Kevin Millar came here. Bill Miller, a utility man from San Francisco, had never played more than, I think it was like 120 games in a season. He was pretty good. Got him for a couple million. And then some guy, the Twins, just didn't want anymore. They thought he wasn't ever going to make his potential. He was this power hitter. He struck out a lot. He played crappy defense. He wasn't worth the roster spot. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of him, but David Big Poppy Ortiz. I don't know. if Have you heard of him before? I don't know. I, I can't believe that. That's unbelievable. That, those three signings right there. So don't let us win the night, the walk, the base hit, and the home runs. That's the World Series right there. In those three moves, and those are all the money ball moves. Picking and choosing because he also signed Jeremy Giambi, Ramiro Mendoza. Jeremy Giambi, Johnny Damon, those were all money ball style guys because Jeremy Giambi played for it and then was traded away by Billy Bean in Oakland in 2002. Uh, he, and he was traded to the Phillies. But when you look back at the team, Mike, and this is what I'm talking about, is that, and this is part of the reason why jumping ahead again this is exactly why theo left when he did when he left the Sox in 05 because john henry wanted him to do something that he wasn't prepared to do the greatness of theo epstein in this time and, and currently because he's now broke two of the longest championship droughts in the history of sports as a general manager and president of baseball operations he knew how to manage the expectations of Moneyball while also being able to spend the money that he needed to in order to bring in the guys that would make that happen. He also knew when to move on from players that he needed to. Garcia Parra, which that was a a big story to begin with. But looking back, it was the right move. Looking back, it was the right move. And that's what he did well that I don't think Billy Bean would have been able to do. So, Mike, while I agree with you that Bobby's picking and choosing, the guys that he brought in that were not very good were there to offset the guys that he was spending all the money on the other end. 
Yeah, I think if we're operating, like this is 2003, like all these moves are happening. You look at those six or those five and you just think, man, like what are we doing? I, I remember all the trailers for Millar. I remember Hazel May at spring training for Nesson talking about how the, this is a 30 home run, 100 RBI power hitter. He's not that, but he might have been more important. But I remember not caring about any of these moves besides Millar. I was wrong. But, you know, back in 2003, you, you just look at that and you say that there's no big splashes in this particular instance. Besides, like, Todd Walker. Todd Walker was the best pickup he made up in 2003 from Cincinnati. It's a great, it's a, it was a great pickup. It was, uh, you know, he gets lost in the shuffle now. But back then, in 2003, he's he was the biggest name. In well, the, I mean, it's because Bellhorn had some, you know, nice moments afterwards. But that's why. Like breaking the strikeout record. In the same season, Mark Bellhorn broke the strikeout record, the walk record, and the singles record. That's so impressive. He was such an average player. But here's an interesting story about Kevin Millar. Did you know that in the 1995 season, when the MLB was on strike, Kevin Millar was one of the players that crossed the picket line to play and was, number one, not allowed to be in the, I believe he wasn't allowed to be in the Players Association anymore. And he was also couldn't be in video games because of crossing the line in the 1995 season. So that's one thing that always stood out to me with him is why he kind of flew under the radar, because I think people saw him as a loose cannon, which he absolutely is. I know what you're saying, picking and choosing, but like when you sign six guys in one season and three of those guys are the backbone and reason you want a championship, you can pick and choose all you fucking want. It's not just they were key contributors. Like when you think about that championship, it's those three. So that's why I'm like, wow. But Ramiro Mendoza, by the way, he was actually a big signing when it happened. I don't know if you guys remember. Yeah, I I was so excited for Ramiro Mendoza when we brought him here. What a schmuck he was, huh? He was a bomb, bro. And throw that that unhittable sinker that no one could hit when he was a Yankee. As soon as he came here, it was no longer a sinker. <laughs> it was no longer a sinker. <laughs> so 2003, season starts off. It's kind of slow, but all of a sudden, this lineup starts making some noise. All of a sudden, this guy, David Ortiz, you're like, wow, this guy could hit the ball. And all of a sudden, the Red Sox are one of the better teams in baseball. So get to about three quarters of the way through the season. And all of a sudden, Kevin Millar has this new saying. He comes up with it. And it kind of became a thing with the Red Sox throughout the next couple of years. And kind of the reason they ended up being who they were and being the team, T-E-A-M, that they were is these sayings that they developed all these years. So 2003, he says, this team needs to step up. You know what? I'll do you one better. This team needs to cowboy up. And Boston took it. They took it and ran with it. And cowboy up became a thing. This was a team that was going to do it. They were going to break this destiny. They were finally going to, you know, get over that hump and be the team that could actually do it. And I actually started to buy in. I don't know if you guys did too, but like by the end of that 2003 season, going into that Oakland series, like I really thought, you know what? Like, I think that we can actually do this thing. Like, I, there's there, I didn't know if we were actually going to do it, but I knew there was a shot. I knew it could happen. It definitely right. could. Right. So for, for me, that year could obviously, that's when they, you know, they became a lot more explosive offensively. So, you know, Millar, Veritek, I think Veritek was like hitting ninth that year. It was crazy. He had like 20 home runs. It was ridiculous. There was a game, I'll never forget, I think it was on a Friday night. Cause that's when the game used to come on Fox 25 with Sean McDonough and Jerry Remy. And when I say they devoured 
the Florida Marlins 25 to 8. Granted, you're not going to score 25 runs, but I'm like, if this team is clicking, we're not losing. Mind you, this is before the boom stuff happens. But I'm like, yo, if they're scoring like this, and we got Pedro at the front, chalk him up and send him home, baby. Like it's, it's a wrap. I said, Nani is coming. I was like, this team is this team is good. I know Ortiz was hitting 188 to start the season that year, but this team can rake. This team can hit. I didn't see how they were going to lose. Um, it didn't matter who they played at that moment. The first game of the season. I don't know if you guys remember this. So going into the season, didn't sign a closer. Oh. Do you guys remember what the saying was? You guys bullpen remember, by right? Committee. By committee, right? Closer by committee. committee. There it is. Bullpen by committee. Oh, yeah, 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 that's it. Committee. You guys remember what happened? You guys remember what happened game one, right? Tampa Bay race. Walk off home run. We were up three to one, and the Tampa Bay Rays hit a walk off. I think it was a three run home run. I forget who it was off of. It, it, I want to say it was Bay, off Tampa of. Tampa Bay was awful then. They, they were really the, the good. The best player might have been this guy named Rocco Baldelli. But so walk off home run first game of the season and just it set it up. It set it up. They ended up being pretty good throughout the year. But like it gave you that. Oh, my God. Bullpen come out of committee. This bullshit. I remember like my buy in for that team came. I think it was like a week after the all star break and all throughout August is you realize just what kind of a team that this was. They led the major leagues in, in all five offensive categories like a run scored, batting average, on base percentage, slugging percentage. And they hit like 649 extra base hits. They shattered the record for a single season. So you just thought, okay, well, this team has it and they have pretty good pitching, like you mentioned. So. Again, how are they going to do this to us again? I was always waiting for the floor to drop out because we've seen it. And that Yankees team that year was a wagon. We forget it. They were just one step better than us. We played, we played them, what, 18, 19? 19 times. They beat us 10. Yeah, the 2003 Yankees were kind of – it was Aaron Boone. Aaron Boone was one of the key players. Like, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it wasn't to me. See, that's what I'm saying, though. I felt like, even though, yes, you know, you still had like Jeter was always a guy I worried about. Like, Jeter, because I'm like, if he's up and the game's on the line, either he's going to hit a single to right field, he's going to hit a double, or he may mess around and even hit a home run, you know, just like he did in, in, in against Baltimore year, years before, you know, when that should have been called and out. But to me, I was just thinking that the way that Mike was. Like, obviously, we talked about the heartbreak, but like I said, my heartbreak didn't come until later on that season, you know? I felt so indoctrinated in this time because we were told to hate those Yankees teams. And how could you have hated those Yankees teams, man? Like, I I never understood that, even from a young age. Like, man, those Yankees teams were so good. And that 2003 season with the Sox, when they, you know, Ray, you bring up the, that huge win over the Marlins. And I, I remember watching that game. And I, I think that game went late into the night. I probably went to bed, woke up and saw it was a you know, a 17 run win. And and then what did the Marlins go on to do that year? Win the world series. No big deal with a couple of guys on that team that would end up coming here to win a world series. But that season, that closer by committee thing that happened in 2003 was the start of kind of what's again going on now with especially Kevin Cash and the Tampa Bay Rays. And I really like Kevin Cash as a manager, but this kind of stuff is causing them a championship. And, and who knows where they would have been if they went into the season in 03 with a closer because then in july they traded for uh former world series champion pyongyang kim and they brought in kim in the 03 season and he kind of became their everyday closer or at least 
for the most part. But yeah, he was a nightmare I, too, I, I, wasn't he? I wasn't, wasn't, I wasn't he a nightmare here. He was terrible here, wasn't he? Yeah, but I, I wasn't happy about that because I, I once again I remember watching. I yeah, but that was a, it was a panic four. buy. They needed a guy. I know, but he wasn't the guy. Like I, I remember watching Game Four, really Game Five, really, every game in New York in the O One World Series. Scott Brooks hits a home run. Uh, Derek Jeter because missing November because he gets a home run of like I was like what are, like I, I was like what are we doing why Jim are you bringing Laritz. someone here Jim yeah Laritz. I'm like yeah Jim well no Jim Lewis that was before that was 96 I think but I couldn't believe that I'm like yo to me I was a Mike Timlin guy that was my guy Mike Timlin he he, he was money every time he got on it was lights out that sinker worked most uh, most days and I was like listen Timlin should be the guy in my opinion even at that time I feel like Timlin should be the guy like I wasn't happy about the BK Kim, you know. I didn't like that. I like this BK. I, I was always an Embry guy myself. Oh, I was a big Embry. Oh guy. no, he was. I love. I love some Alan Embry, terrible. bro. He was terrible. No, but man. but in the right, but in the right. Listen, and he was bad when you brought him in with no one on base. Alan Embry was light out when it was second and third, two outs, and he needed that out. Listen, that guy was getting struck out every time. I know exactly who that pitcher is. And that's the kind of guy I want on my team because I know when I'm bringing him in and it's that high stress situation, he's doing it. But if he doesn't do it, he's probably going to give up a bomb. So there's really no in between. But yeah. guys, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Him being like Alan Embry was pretty good when he was here. I mean, for I, a relief I, I, pitcher, I bro, he was here for years too. He was no, here for he what? was here for two, two uh, three. He was two only two years? years, two and a half years. I remember. I mean, obviously, we remember the pitch, and we'll talk about that. But it's just like I, I remember so many moments where it was like, oh, he's in the game. It's it's, it's a wrap. I don't remember that. Here's where I'm going to sound like Bobby as it comes out of my mouth. They were missing that championship DNA. They were missing something and we know what it was now but they were missing something in 03 that they didn't have and they needed and they went and got it in 04 but trading for kim was a panic buy but he was a good enough pitcher with a really weird arm angle who had pitched in the playoffs and theo said let's go get this guy man let's go get him and they did, and they went and got him from Arizona. And, you know, I, I know he wasn't great in the 01 World Series, and Luis Gonzalez really helped the Diamondbacks squeak that World Series win out against the Yankees. But that didn't mean that Kim didn't have big game experience. I mean, we can talk about that until the cows come home. But then you would talk about Alan Ember. You talk about Mike Timlin. They had these guys in 03, and they were just getting there. And as much as our hearts were broken once again in 03, Mike, if you look at this team and you – Look back, the foundation that was put together and brought over from the the previous regime of Dan Duquette and given to Grady Little and Theo Epstein, man, this was it. Like, this was it. Like, they were so close and had no business being there. And that's what I love most about the 03 team. What's funny with this team is what ended up happening, too, with the bullpen, right? So we get to the end of the season here. So we'll get to the end of the season right now. So Red Sox end the season at 95 and 67. They go into a wild card matchup against the A's. Now, the funny thing about this is like we talk all this shit about the bullpen. Going into this series, man, the most confident part we had about this team was how well the bullpen was pitching. I don't know if you guys remember another big acquisition, which was a different thing, too. I meant to go off that, too, Joe, is that was a different thing for the Red Sox was we made multiple trade deadline acquisitions for something that we needed to go win a championship. We needed something. And you're right, Joe, he went and got him. 
And that was something we weren't accustomed to because we always needed that. And like the moves they would make were stupid moves, bringing in someone like Cliff Floyd, who's like awesome. But like at the time it was great, but like you don't need to do that. It's not going to help you win a championship. Bringing in relievers who can pitch for you late in games is going to win you championships. Bringing in guys like Dave Roberts is going to win you championships. And those were the kind of moves That's that they made. They brought in Scott Williamson, who to me was nails in this 2003 ALDS. He was the reason they came back in this. So the Red Sox fall down 2 nothing the first two games against the A's. They looked outgunned by this team. This team had Tejada, Eric Chavez, Ramon Hernandez, Tim mm. Hudson, Barry Zito, Mark Boulder, and Keith Folk in the bullpen. This team was loaded. And Jermaine Dye, Eric Burns, you just go down the list. This team had them from top to bottom, and they looked like they were better than us. Game three, ever so reliable. Two Red Sox greats come up big. Trot Nixon, Derek Lowe. Derek Lowe pitches an unbelievably game. Unbelievable game. And Trot Nixon hits a walk-off home run, which kind of gets lost in, in, in the shuffle of things. Not a lot of people... Remember Trot Nixon and how clutch this dude was and how many walk-offs he hit? Um, One of my favorite outfielders so of all time. Like, yeah, I love Trot Nixon. He was the OG dirt dog. I, I don't know if it was right game three or game four, because obviously, you know, yes, they ended up tying the series back in Boston. That play where Eric Burns at the plate changed that series. Mm-hmm. He, when mm-hmm. he trips over Veritek and, you know, they end up calling him out and he loses his mind. And he's like, what are you talking about? Ah, just, just going off. And it was like, oh, okay. Like we're actually showing some fight here. And then next thing you know, you know, they just had a series and, you know, in game four or she's just a double that you know, I talked about, you know, then we get to game five and, you know, my, my guy, Manny does what he does. Yep. It's a bomb into left field. And I was just like, okay. I'm like, here, here we go. This, so, this, is, wait, wait, this is 99. Because I'm like, 99, when we came back against Cleveland, I was like, okay, we got it. Pedro came in there, throws was one of the best relief performances of all time. Okay, 03 is going to be just like 99. Cool, we get through Cleveland. It did touch a lot it. of the same notes. It's funny. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. It did. It, it, there, was, there, there was two moments in this 2003 playoffs that showed me – the Red Sox, like I just said, they were a player or two away, or I'll just throw it out there, or a manager away from a World Series championship. It was their nose, maybe. Yeah, that too. But it was going into this game five, and then the moment in the Yankee series that really showed me, as heartbreaking as it was, looking back on it now, these two moments, let's start with this one. You're heading into game five against the Oakland Athletics, you were down two games to nothing against Billy Bean, the guy who less than a year ago you tried to give $12.5 million to as John Henry to bring in as your general manager and do exactly what he was doing in Oakland. And he goes back to Oakland, and I don't think he had any remorse to John Henry. I just think he did, thought that his business in Oakland was not done, and it clearly wasn't. Because he had a great regular season with Oakland, then the Oakland gets the Red Sox. And like, if I'm Billy Bean and I'm John Henry, I'm like, all right, th- this is where we show what I can do with no money. Or John Henry says, this is what you could have had. And you go into that game five and I can just, I don't remember having this feeling then because I didn't really understand that situation at that age. But just to watch it back and, and, and relive it, 
and understand what was actually going on. I really think this was the first moment where John Henry said, okay, we're almost there. I got the right guy in the front office. I found the guy I need. Now, now what's my next move? And funny story about that Manny Ramirez home run. I actually have a scar on my right hand, on my knuckle, on my middle finger from when he hit that home run to put the socks up four to one, when they were down one, nothing heading into the sixth inning, I jumped up and scraped my hand against my ceiling at home and have a nice scar on there. And I'll always remember it because of Manny's home run. And as much jubilation as I felt at that moment, I'm with Mike because I can feel Mike's eyes seething through the camera at me. There was a way they were going to screw this up, but they went up 4-1 and they still almost blew it, but they held they held on. You're right, Joe, where it was something different. You know what I mean? Like Red Sox teams of the past, I know there was 99, I know, but this was different than 99, man. This team was different. It, it just felt different. The way they came back, the way they hung on to it, the way that they almost saw their star center fielder get killed oh, in the it, middle it, of game it, five, it, 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 get absolutely it, yeah, knocked out cold, get taken off on a stretcher, and you still win that game. It was different. You know what I mean? It was a different team. Derek Lowe, by the way. And this ALDS was balls. This dude was amazing. He pitched game one, game three, and game five. That's unbelievable. He pitched in relief game one, started game three, relief game five. That doesn't happen anymore. The last person to do something like that is Madison Bumgarner. So it's just, he was he was the MVP for that series, for sure. And then he gave him the, and then he gave him the suck it symbol when he beat him. You remember that? He gave him the suck it? Yeah. But, Mike, I get it, man, because you know what? You're right, and, and it ended up being 100% right, and my dad said the same thing at the t- same time. I was at the Charlie Horse watching this game five with my family, and my dad, I, I'll never forget, everyone in the whole place was standing up, whole place, ready to win this series. Only person sitting down still in the booth is my dad. And he's just like, and I'm like, Dad, what are you doing, bro? Get up. Where about the-? He goes, I'll Don't wait. celebrate till it's over. Yeah, he goes, I'll wait. Oh, wait. And when they won, he like he did. He jumped up. He was like, yeah, it was like high five and everything. But listen, man, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget that moment where I looked over at him and I saw him arms. He wasn't even he wasn't even reacting. He was arms folded. I feel that energy. I, I feel that energy so much as someone who is now in their 30s and even watching sports and, and, and our, our teams being so good. But I feel that energy because I, I told you guys this with the 01 Super Bowl win, uh, Super Bowl 36, and the same thing here where I just I remember my dad saying, wait till it's over. Wait until they win before you celebrate. And I feel that energy that our dads had now because I'm like, even when you're that close, you still have to reserve judgment because you you don't want to celebrate too early. And he was right. He wasn't wrong for not celebrating, Bobby. I mean, you got to wait until it's done because 10 days later. So let's say we were all born. The five of us were born. We're just going to say 70s, right? So we're 33 years old. Red Sox still haven't won a World Series. Can you imagine what that feeling would be like? Imagine being in your 40s. And having three kids, and then they still have a woman. And now your kids are now crying. We brought this up in the first episode of this. 
when we said we are so spoiled. So anybody that's listening to this right now and has gotten this far and is the age of our parents, grandparents, great grandparents in some cases, they're going to be like, well, what did you guys have to like, what did you have to worry about? Well, what we had to worry about in 03 was the fact that we had our parents and our grandparents, as Ray has said, as Bobby has said, as I've said, and as Mike is just exemplifying, is that we were told by that older generation, wait, because there there is heartbreak and it will happen. And we had yet to really experience consistent winning and that's why we can look back on this and have those thoughts and those feelings because we were basically indoctrinated with it that the red Sox suck and they're never going to win and it's never going to happen and until it does we blame the curse of the bambino and all this other crap that went on and now we can look back and say man we did it We, we were a part of it we were here for the best part of boston red Sox, new england patriots boston well i I don't want to say we were here for the best part of boston celtics history because they already they only won one and i know ray will crucify me the best era the best era of boston boston yeah it was the best era of boston sports let's put it that way it culminate as a whole and we have to be humble because looking back on 2003 and if we're living there this is really how we felt we were told to wait And Bobby obviously is a very emotional person. We've had to tell him to wait many times, but it's just, your dad was right. So like, despite the euphoria of overcoming a 2-0 deficit and beating the Oakland A's, when you looked up and saw that your next opponent was the Yankees, I'm telling you, I didn't trust it. I didn't like it. And I was like, I I obviously you want to beat them. But even as a 15-year-old, you just think to yourself, you, you're just, are we like, are we ready for this? And I, I wasn't. I can tell you now, 18 years later, I was not ready for the 2003 ALCS. Still not. No, I, I, was, I couldn't agree more, man. It was such an emotional series. I got in a legitimate fight at high school because of this playoff series. Like, that's how emotional this shit was. This was the most stressful two weeks of my life up until that point. Coming into it, you know, honestly, I was confident. I I was the opposite, man. I I really felt like we could do it. I really did. Just the way the season went, the way we just came back, I was like, this is it, man. This is it. No, no, no. But honestly, the thing that stands out to me, so there's two things that stand out to me. (laughs) The Don Zimmer... Pedro Martinez fight was one of the best moments and funniest moments in the history of baseball. I get it. I know it was horrible. Dudes, an old man's getting thrown to the ground. Horrible. Listen, he charged him like a bull and Pedro bullfighted him. I'm sorry. He, he ole. It, it was, it was awesome. It was great. Listen, it was one of the best moments in baseball history. He great. played both sides. He, he managed the Red Sox before in, in the seventies and eighties. Now he's coaching on, he's on the, he's with the evil empire. So, Hey, you charged at me. I'm here to defend myself. I'm standing my ground. You charged towards me. I'm, I'm going to grab you by your, your big ass head and watch you tumble like tumbleweed. It was great. And my, he was perfectly My grandmother, fine. who was older, was like, oh, my God. Yeah, he but guided him. He guided him laugh, to the ground. Yeah, we had just, you know, but when I saw my grandmother laugh, I said, oh, 
this is how deep the hate is because he was as old as my grandmother's, but she was like, he's a Yankee. And I was like, cool. You think it's funny? I think it's funny. I, I mean, that's just human nature. I mean, I, I don't care who it is. If somebody runs at me, like you just said, I'm going to, I'm going to push him to the ground. That's why it was a hilarious moment, but it's like, why on earth, why on earth is it's like, <laughs> I think of it from like a New Orleans Saints, you know, the the, the scandal that they had. Bounty Gate. Uh, the, the the Bounty Bounty Gate. <laughs> where, where, and I'm like, <laughs> I mean, did like, did Joe Torre tell Don Zimmer to run after one of the greatest pitchers of all time? Like, is that what we're doing? Because Kareem Garcia could have done that on his own if you actually wanted to get some results out of it. This is actually one of the silliest moments to me in this entire rivalry. But this is when the rivalry was actually a rivalry. And a lot of people nowadays won't understand what that is. When people talk about the Red Sox-Yankees rivalry, they're not going to know what it was without seeing this and the Veritech A-Rod fight. Like They're they're not going to know what it is without it. But just to go on to this Yankees team in this series and Mike said, he's not ready for it. I'm not either. Cause it's giving me chills. Uh, Jorge Posada, Jason Giambi, Alfonso Soriano, Derek Jeter, Robin Ventura, Hideki Matsui, Bernie Williams, Raul Mondesi, and Nick Johnson was their starting lineup with, with Todd zeal, Aaron Boone, Ruben Sierra, Juan Rivera, Kareem Garcia, all on the bench. I feel like that speaks to Mike's point where you're like, it's this team. Wasn't, they were a bag of misfits from not even bag of misfits, an over-the-hill gang from Triple Play 99. That was the team that was the team that was on the field for 2003 for the Yankees. You know what I mean? Like, that was the guys that you're like, oh, bro, Todd Zeal's on the block in, 2000, in 1999. Yeah, let's get him. This was not 1999. This is 2003. Rule Mondesi is not Rule Mondesi anymore. You know what I mean? This team wasn't as good. Do you like that Triple Play 99 reference, Joe? This, I, know, this, I know you did. Yeah, this, but this team... Was that good, Bobby? The Sox led in, in five of the major offensive categories for sure. But remember, like their starting rotation was still Tim Wakefield, Derek Lowe, Pedro Martinez, John Burkett, and then who? Frank and Castillo, then, bro. Frank and, Castillo, and, or, or, or and then someone else that fits spot. And you're going up against Pettit, Lucina, Clemens, Contreras. Who the hell knows? And El Duque. Don't forget. Yeah. Him. Oh yeah. 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 Or, Orlando Hernandez. And then if you can just hang on to the eighth or ninth inning, then Mariano Rivera comes in. This, this, this team was a wagon. This team was built to win. And and the fact that they were all in their 30s, with the exception of like Nick Johnson, who was the baby of the group at 24 years old in this season, there was three guys in that starting lineup that were under the age of 30. It was Jeter, Matsui, and, and Johnson. And then that pitching rotation. I mean, again, Mike, as you said, Pettit, Wells, Contreras, Clemens, Messina, Randy Choate. I mean, they had Jeff Weaver was on that team. That was when Jeff Weaver was a big free agent signing. Right. Too. Jeff Weaver was like the big guy coming out of that. Yeah, that uh, trade deadline. They got him. And then like then, like Mike said, I mean, those guys are, are workhorses and they're going to give you seven innings a night, if not more. And then you get to Mariano Rivera. I, I mean, you know, you can say all oh, in over the hill gang, but Bobby, these guys had won before. I mean, we're talking like space cowboys kind of stuff. Like we're talking about, hey, young bucks, watch us do this and watch us mess you up. I get that. But when you compare the 2003 Yankees to the 2004 Yankees, they're, the 2003 Yankees can't hold a candle to I the disagree. 2004 Yankees. I disagree, dude. Close. That, I, no, the 2004 Yankees was so much better. Top to bottom, the team was so good, man. You look at the lineup in 2004, so good. Disagree. I, I think I think the I think 
Well, you brought it up. The 03 Yankees had more grit. And if you want to talk about championship DNA, championship DNA in 2003 was pinstripes. That was it. That's how, that's what defined yeah, champion. I will agree with that point. So if you're saying the better team and the better will and like all that, the championship DNA, the shit I love. Yeah, I'll give you that. That that was better. Talent wise, the 2004 Yankees definitely were better. You want to talk about age, though, Bobby. You want to talk about age. In 2004, they had one guy under the age of 30, and that was A-Rock. Everybody else was 30, and it was Posada, Tony Clark, Miguel Cairo, Derek Jeter, Alex Gonzalez, Hideki Matsui, Bernie Williams, Gary Sheffield, Ruben Sierra. And, I mean, I think the difference between the 04 Yankees and the 03 Yankees was the fact that, and I know we're supposed to be talking about the Red Sox here, but the Yankees were such a big part of these two years for this Red Sox team that the the Yankees 03 team was more talented, but the 04 Yankee team had, they had something else. They had something else that, that well, they ended up having a fatal flaw. They, they ended up having a similar fatal flaw to what the Red Sox had in 03. It doesn't really matter what you do, right? Like the Yankees didn't win again until 2009. But if you look at 03, 04 Yankees, I mean, they were still riding those championship teams from the late 90s. And that's exactly what they should have been doing. Now I look at some of these ages and I'm like, shoot, like, okay, they had Kenny Lofton on that team at 37 years old. You know, they just had leaders. They just had dudes. They they had dudes on that team. It was just. They were spurs um, in it. That's what it they was were a, doing. They were spurs in it. They, they put together. Guys. Yeah, they put together vets around the core they already had to make that run last longer than it should have. They they had Jeter, they had Bernie, they had Posada, and they brought in these perfect role players to fit into that mold to make the run last five years longer than it should have. That's exactly what they were, and that's what this 0304 was. One, one thing the Yankees had on their team in 04 that they didn't have in 03 was Worcester, Massachusetts native Tanyan Sturts. So just throwing that out there. Tanya Sturts, bro. Nice. I love it. I love it. All right. On the note of Tanya Sturts, let's dive into this ALCS, huh? So honestly, like, I don't, if I'm going to say I don't remember specific points of this ALCS, tell them the truth. I don't remember very many things about this ALCS, except there's the the fight, game six, a moment that gets lost in history for some reason. And and it might be because we already had the lead, but Trot Nixon's home run in the ninth inning to extend that to a 3-1 lead, and I'll never forget that moment ever. I knew we were going to game seven. It was close. I was still, like, you know, biting my nails, and then Trot hits that home run. And I've never been happier in my entire life up to that point. Trot Nixon, I love you, man. Love you. Come back to the right. I'd still let you play in the outfield for the Red Sox. Let's go. The, this ALCS was... Memorable, similarly to why the 86 World Series is memorable, because everybody remembers the two moments in this series in Game 7, and I'm going to steal your Game 7 thunder here, was the decision for Grady Little to leave Pedro Martinez in, and then for Aaron Boone to hit that walk-off home run against Tim Wakefield, so the two things that stand out to me about Grady Little, the Red Sox going, going in the game seven, I was pretty confident by inning five. I, I hate admitting this. I thought it was over, man. I was like, we're going in a World Series. Like, you know, we're four, 14, what were we, 14, 15 years old at the time? I was ready to go to the World Series. It was time. And 
like I thought my dad was being such a hater. I'm like, there's dad, it's Pedro. It's Pedro. There's no way they're gonna blow this. No way. And then he gave up the one hit, and I was like, all right, all right. Listen, as soon as Pedro, every year, every game he pitched, he hit a hundred pitches, and it was a wall. It's over. He hit that wall, and Guido came out, and I'll never forget. I was 15 years old. You guys probably did the same thing. As soon as he walked away from that mound, I just was like, oh no. Oh, no, especially because our bullpen had been wiped out. You had Timlin warming up. He was ready to come in. You had Williamson ready to come in. And these guys both had under a one ERA in the playoffs up to that point. Like, these guys were balls. And and I get it, but come on, man. Like, it's what you did all season. Don't change. Don't let the moment. You are always on this. Don't change what you do. This is what you've done all season. You said this in the NFL playoffs in 2020 was with a couple of decisions by some head coaches. And as I always try to do with your emotions and my own is to temper the expectations because you already said exactly what everyone else that agreed with the decision said. When Grady Little left Pedro Martinez in the game, what did your dad say to you prior to that when you were getting all excited about going to the World Series? It's Pedro Martinez. It's it's Pedro Martinez. So you, when he walked away from that mound and left him in, and you're sitting there saying, well, the bullpen's been lights out. Well, yeah, but it's Pedro Martinez. So the problem I had with the decision to leave Pedro Martinez in this game by Grady Little is that Grady Little after the game basically put that decision on Pedro and basically told the media that it was Pedro that wanted to stay in the game. And Grady was like, yeah, sure. Okay. So he kind of took responsibility off of himself, but it cost him his job. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. But to go back to the point where you mentioned, well, you've done this all season. Well, yeah, he did that all season, but that was games zero through 162, not game seven of the ALCS. So there has to be a difference made there. You, you got you have to change your approach because sometimes it's also, especially in baseball, more in baseball than in football, you have to change your approach because the game is 90% mental. As Yogi Berra once said, the game is 90% mental, the other half is physical. But that's what you have to realize is that the change had to be made in two separate ways. You're right. You're absolutely right. Should have gone to the bullpen. But at the same time, you answered your own question when you said, it's Pedro, it's Pedro. Martinez. I know. But okay, okay, fine, fine. Listen, Pedro says, listen, I'm Pedro Martinez. I'm going to strike this motherfucker out. He gave him a double. He gave up a double. And you know what Grady Little did? He kept his ass on that bench and didn't take him out. So like, listen, dude, all right, fine. Listen, I'll give you a batter. I'll give you a batter. When you give up a double and now it's four to three, go get your guy, man. Like you're leaving him out there with his dick in his hands, bro. Like go get him. Go get him. But you're also, I remember the camera going to Grady Little. I, I distinctly remember this and, and seeing him sitting on the bench. And that was the moment I knew that it was over, even at that age. I mean, you've been watching it enough, indoctrinated by sports enough at that age, that it, I knew right there that, one, it was probably over, and two, that was the end of Grady Little's time in Boston. The fact that he sat on that bench and never went and got Pedro and he had two pitchers ready in the bullpen to go. But I, I think I truly believe Grady Little didn't have what it took 
to take Pedro Martinez out of that game. And he was going to ride that to the end because he didn't hit his compete level wasn't 10 and he didn't have the championship DNA. But Grady Little was a builder. Grady Little was the Tony Dungy of the MLB. He was there to build. He wasn't there to win. And that's fine. I mean, one thing that Tony Dungy did that Grady Little never did was win. But that's what he was there to do. He was help, He was there to help build. And he did just that for two seasons. Ray, what do you got to say, man? Come on. I know when, when, when Grady came out, that, that when that camera was focusing on him not coming out, what were you thinking, bro? I know something in you was ready to throw that TV through the wall. I know it was happening. Pedro did the point to the sky. And at that time, that was his signal saying that he was done. He was hugging teammates. It was like, okay, I gave my seven innings. We're up four to two. Okay, that, that's enough. And the fact that he still brought him out there for the eighth really is just, it's, it's ineptitude on, on Grady Little's behalf. And for those two seasons, he was there. Like you said, like like Joe said, he he did become the Tony Dungy, but in Tampa Bay, not Indianapolis, because he was Tampa Bay, and then we ended up getting our John Gruden, well, so to speak, the, the, the next year. It was insane to see that happen. I I, I couldn't believe that he, he thought it was okay to keep him out there. And once again, if, you, if you're the manager – what what else are you there for but to make those hard decisions when it matters, right? Not just saying, well, you know, well, you know, we left it in Pedro's hand or we left it in Derek Lowe's hand. No, There's, you're supposed to see the end goal. If the end goal is for you to get past this Yankee team, the end goal is for you to get to the World Series, I get it. And I understand Pedro Martinez really is the best pitcher of our generation. To me, it's not close, but I'm biased because I saw him do it night in and night out in a Red Sox uniform for eight years. But you have to save him from himself at that, at that moment. He punched to the sky. You have you have different guys out there that can do it. Whether it's Williamson, Tomlin, you have guys out there that can do that can get the job. So you have to do that. Period. Also, what people forget is this wasn't 1999 Pedro Martinez. This was a finesse Pedro Martinez. This was a Pedro that. Still, yes, was electric, but he wasn't throwing 98. He was throwing 94. He was throwing 93. And once those pitches started to hit 90, 91, like, it, it was clockwork every time he pitched. That thing said 90, it would get him out. It was time for Pedro to go because he was going to give up four runs editing if he didn't. And it was every time. And it was just like, dude, Grady, if you, the way I saw it was like, I went to bed that night. So wait, we, we jumped ahead of all this. So, by the way. Grady Little doesn't take Pedro Martinez out, in case anyone was wondering. Pedro gives up the lead. Red Sox blow this game. Tim Wakefield, of all people, turns into the goat of the series, even though he was probably the series MVP up until that point. Somehow is now remembered for giving up the game-winning home run to Aaron fucking Boone. And, you know, I went to sleep that night hysterically crying, saying, why didn't you take him out? Two things. I mean, like people forget that he that Wakefield pitched a pretty good tenth, a, a really good Yo, tenth. He was unbelievable right? that whole really series, good. man. Yeah, he was really whole good. Series. And that pitch in the eleventh that Boone turned on. I just remember I was watching this with my grandfather who who passed before the 04 World Series. So he was like uh, 68, 69 at this point. And I remember wa- I, I turned to him and I was like, "They do this every time. Like, how do you still watch them? What are we doing here?" And he's like, but "Yeah, but." Wasn't it a fun ride up until they lost? I'm like, no, it wasn't. This not, none of this was fun. I mean, again, the abusive relationship thing. But that series, I think. So I, I again, 15 years old. I, I went to bed just like you, just so upset. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I listened to all the post game coverage on on EEI on the way home, and I, I just couldn't stomach it. But it did feel different. 
right? Like it, it didn't feel like it, it, that it was the like it, it was going to be the, the walk into the abyss again. It kind of felt like maybe there are people on this team that will learn from it. Exactly. And that's what made it feel different. And that's why I I don't mean to move on from this heartbreak as fast as possible, but that's what I wanted to do in real life. And I wanted us to do it as fast as possible in real life. And I'm feeling kind of nauseous right now, even talking about this fucking game. Every time I see anything about Aaron Bleep and Boone and his home run, I literally change the channel. And that leads us to 2004. Stay tuned later this summer as we recap the Red Sox curse breaking 2004 World Series winning season. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together, we explore vibrations, frequencies, and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress, and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast.